I'm Craig Box, and this is a Let's Get to the News special feature. Priyanka Sagu is a Kubernetes integration engineer at SUSE and is the release team lead for Kubernetes 1.29, which is out today. Welcome to the show, Priyanka. Hey, Craig. Thank you for inviting me. You're a Kubernetes integration engineer at SUSE. Haven't we integrated everything already? That's something you would ask my rancher colleagues from SUSE. For me, my Kubernetes integration engineer position is more like integrating Kubernetes releases every new release into SUSE Enterprise Linux. Mm -hmm. No, we have not integrated everything. Everything we are releasing new has to be integrated. With all these companies trying to differentiate themselves, are you worried that you might cancel each other out from a calculus perspective? That's not something for me, though. I'm just using the upstream Kubernetes as it is. All we are trying to just package the upstream Kubernetes packages on OpenSUSE Tumbleweed. So I'm a maintainer of Kubernetes packages. That's my day job to maintain Kubernetes packages on OpenSUSE Tumbleweed, as well as part of those packages, we also ship them in SUSE Enterprise Linux. We do not add anything new, so no cancelling happening from BCL side of SUSE. Well, Rancher has a whole Kubernetes product line, but yeah, I'll leave that discussion to the experts. (laughs) These days, people use container packaging as an alternative to operating system packages, DEBs, RPMs, etc. How easy is it to map Kubernetes itself to operating system packages? I can talk from packaging perspective and as a user perspective, if I'm getting anything packaged from my package manager, that's the first thing I would want. If I can just do a zipper install or a apt install, perfect. I would not want to add repos or maybe pull in the GitHub repo and then clone it and build something out of the code. So for a user, it's very handy if you get something out of the package manager itself. For the packagers, although it's a hard job to actually package all the container bits. That's one of the main challenges we have with packaging Kubernetes in OpenSUSE or SUSE Linux Enterprise, how many versions we have. We are maintaining four versions of Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. So maintain all four of them and not just Kubernetes itself. When we talk about Kubernetes, we are talking about, I think, nine packages, nine sub-packages in Kubernetes, uh, all the server packages, as well as dependency packages like etcd, is on a different version on most times on different minor Kubernetes versions we are maintaining. Same for core DNS and same for other bits. So it's a big thing. Like it's a very complicated mess of things when it comes to packaging. But once it's packaged and all I'm having to do is zipper install or apt install on my machine, that's what we want. Yeah, it's, it's definitely easier than building on our own. On the one hand, you're a person who packages Kubernetes releases. Surely you don't like the fact that, on the other hand, you're a person who is putting out a release, and if you hadn't put that release out, it would be a lot less work for you. I would still consider the minor releases that come out every four months. Patch releases are a different story. We get three or four patch releases every month. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of work. If I get less releases out every month, I would love it. <laughs> That's not the case, though. There is talk about revitalizing the idea of long-term support releases for Kubernetes. I guess that's something that would be particularly relevant to SUSE's customers. Yes, and not just to SUSE's customer. I think every company who uses Kubernetes and build up on it, I think the idea is to actually start supporting the versions of Kubernetes that are no longer under support. So it might be getting more releases rather than less releases. Mm -hmm. But we have not really finalized on the community side, what do we really mean by LTS? Everything is 
right now on the table for discussion. It's a good thing we did all that work on automation then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There is a lot of work going on on automating a lot of aspects of release. Some of them are helping us. Some of them are actually making more work for us. But yeah, automation in general in any aspect of Kubernetes is something everyone is considering right now. Let's turn the clock back a little bit and talk about how you got into Kubernetes. What made you choose computing as a career path? I'll talk about India. In India, when we are going from senior secondary education, we call it 10th and 12th here. The three most popular streams of education anybody would choose would be either medical, that is you go and study some doctor line and be a doctor. Other would be engineer, and it could be any engineer. One of them is definitely computers. And third one is arts. So you pick up arts and you go from there to maybe like government services or public sector. Mm-hmm. I think for me, I was I was very much into mathematics during my 12th and 10th senior secondary education. And the traditional path forward for anybody who is interested in mathematics is take engineering we have these exams that we give that that help us to get into colleges. I don't know if that's the same in other countries too. We call it JE Advance and JE Mains. Mm-hmm. So I, I also gave those exams and based on the score that you get out of those exams, plus your senior secondary scores, you get a list of colleges that you can pick up from, as well as what kind of stream you can pick from those colleges. For me, I ended up getting computer science. Computer science is like one of the top Once, if you get it, just grab it. That was the story for me. (laughs) I got it and I grabbed it and yeah, rest is right. You didn't fancy being an artist and working for the government? Maybe not working for the government part, but I I really am into art, artistic stuff to be very specific. Yeah, I don't think that would have been a good career at that point of time. Maybe today, today situations are different. Yeah. Back on the old show, I talked to Nebarun Pal, who was the lead of the Kubernetes 121 release. He told me about the Linux users group of Durgapur. You were involved with that group also while you were at college. What can you tell me about that? Linux user group of Durgapur, we call it DGPLUG. In short, mm-hmm. I think I was in second year of my college when one of my classmates introduced me to this program. How I participated was through a summer training. So DGPLUG, the whole group actually runs summer trainings. And these summer trainings are not the usual summer trainings we talk about. Mostly these summer trainings were text-based summer trainings used to be run on IRC platforms by the mentors. I was part of the 2018 cohort. Mm -hmm. If I remember correctly, the curriculum, the first some classes that I got from the mentors there was around communication guidelines. How do you talk to people online? Email guidelines. How do you email people So all those soft skill stuffs, uh, that is what I learned, I think, in my first month there. How it ended up helping me, actually, that was my starting point for my professional and career growth there. All the mentors actually were associated with one or other open source projects. Most of them were associated with Python Software Foundation or Fedora or Debian or some sort of like one of these big projects. Kubernetes was not there, at least that's what I recall from my 2018 time. Yeah, those people actually, their main focus was to at least have some folks out of those training cohorts and help them to get started with one of the projects. In India, if we talk about colleges curriculum, it's mostly theoretical. You are going through books and you are 
going to theories and sitting for exams and if you get a good score you set for placements and that's all i hope that's not the same for the doctor track as well oh no that's not the case i i i don't think it's the case for engineering even at this point we are talking about 2015 to 2019 specifically for me when i was in college mm-hmm. and during that time we actually got something very nice happening in india we had this telecom company that made internet very accessible to people Mm-hmm. For a few months, we had unlimited internet for free. That was the time I think I also was trying to get around this DGPLUG community, so I could access stuff on internet. I can learn absolutely anything from internet. Internet was free that time. That changed a lot of things. So now we really did not have to rely on our books or on our teachers from our universities. we had access to all these online communities we can talk to them all the courses all all the other educational material that's available that is a very new thing for people that time i think one of the reasons why dgplg runs the meetings or the trainings the way they run is because of internet bandwidth in india we internet is it's not the same case now but it was a very like expensive or a very luxurious thing for people uh, not everybody could afford uh, internet that time Do you think that availability of internet has triggered the contribution from Indian students and professionals to more international projects? Absolutely. I think India was contributing to projects not just open source projects in general a lot of other projects in technology even before that but that was not like the mainstream thing. It has now become a thing like everybody can do it, everybody wants to do it and more because of opportunities that has come out of this internet being accessible to people yeah that's definitely a thing one opportunity that you had was participation in the outreachy program december 2019 what exactly is that program and how did that set you up for further contribution to open source outreachy is an internship program for underrepresented communities so it could be women anybody from the lgbtq community or anybody who represent themselves as non male mm-hmm. I was part of the cohort in 2019 and backstory is mostly because of DGPLG I was working around people who were associated with all these projects at that time I was working with a few maintainers from Debian project Debian diaspora very fortunately that project the bit of Debian was actually going to participate in outreachy that time so I got introduced to outreachy I ended up in gnome gnome uh, foundation I was just trying to see different projects that were available for that cohort and the gnome one ended up being the one that I was selected for. What was your experience contributing to Gnome? Oh, that's one of the best experiences of my life. I think a good a fun part before I actually go into that experience my mentor who was my mentor for 3 months in the Gnome project is also now a colleague to me in Suza. So that feels like an achievement to me. Wonderful. I was working on a desktop application called G Translator that application is meant for people who translate documentation or any norm desktop application documentation whatever about page or any content things anybody who wants to translate them into different languages that application enables them or helps them to do that I was specifically working on a few UI elements for me it was amazing because I did not know anything that I was working on during those 3 months before I actually was selected. One of the motivations why I selected that project was it had a few technical stacks listed on the project that were not like the normal traditional skills that we usually see in projects like Python. 
it was something like CGTK plus library and the good part was mentor was very much willing to help somebody who was going to be an intern to learn on the go during this internship period. I think I like both those things that somebody is actually going to pay me to learn on the go and help me learn as well. I did my best. I went there. I followed the instructions what they wanted me to do and I went back. I think showing up was the biggest thing I did and that worked out very well for me and that's one of the advice I've been giving to everybody who reached out to me after my cohort. Is it more important to learn go or learn on the go? Oh, <laughs> uh, both. <laughs> If you need go, learn go, but on the go is always a thing. <laughs> For people who are unfamiliar with uh, GNOME or GNOME as a desktop environment that's been around the Linux ecosystem for over 20 years now, I do actually see some parallels to that community and the Kubernetes community. And there's a long-running piece of software with various vendors who have commercial versions and startups who've come and gone in that space and so on. How do you see the contrast between these two communities having been involved with both of them? Well, I don't have much to say right now about GNOME because I was there for a three-month period only. I can talk about Kubernetes, that it's a very complicated ecosystem right now. Uh, we are very much struggling hard and trying hard to maintain everything that we already have while maintaining a pace of new stuff coming in. It's getting complicated, mm -hmm. but it's still something we are trying to manage. It's still manageable, but growing complicated every single day. And now people are trying to... <laughs> different ways how to simplify it. I am assuming that's the case with GNOME from what you described, but I really don't have much comment here. Yeah. yeah, there'll be a Kubernetes 3 release coming up where they get rid of all of the settings and you can't control anything anymore. <laughs> Tim Hocken will love it. How then did you move on to working on Kubernetes? After Outreachy, I think I moved of the desktop environment. That was also the time when I was graduated from my college. So I was looking for a full-time opportunity as well. During my time with DGPLG, I used to work on a lot of admin tasks, system administration, and uh, a lot of tools I was coming across, like Ansible or other DevOpsy tools. As an old person, I was just about to say, I'm really proud of the fact you're calling it systems administration and not just calling it <laughs> DevOps. Yeah, yeah. I learned about them as system admin stuff, and I realized DevOps is the new term for all of those stuff nowadays, and maybe I can use what I learned to get a DevOps job. Oh, we've moved on. It's called SRE now. Yeah, yeah. So actually, my career path has also grown in the same direction. I got an internship opportunity at a data ops organization after Outreachy. Mm -hmm. I was more of a Kubernetes user at that time. I joined there in the capacity of DevOps engineer mostly working on Kubernetes environments for data ops applications that time. That was not a very much open source organization. It was a startup culture, so I did not have much time to really contribute back to any project at all. And my inclination was towards that side. So I got opportunity back from folks I knew in the GNOME Foundation. They helped me to get a job in Red Hat. I joined Red Hat in the cloud services SRE team as a cloud services SRE. Mm -hmm. I was working on OpenShift dedicated managed services. That was also the time when I started looking at Go flavor or Kubernetes flavor of Go code. I kind of started hacking on a few things here and there with the engineering team. I was supposed to be a SRE. Also, we had a lot of CI tools coming from Red Hat that time. Tecton, I think, was in beta that time. Mm -hmm. And we used to use a lot of Tecton pipelines to build up centralized monitoring system and all those kind of cool stuff just to build our own tools for our own team. And I started writing a lot of Go that time. 
so that was what helped me to go back to kubernetes i actually had a bit of story with kubernetes before i did not work out and i took like a six months gap i really ran away from that project because it was like too overwhelming for me after red hat i actually went back once i like got some go understanding or i was feeling a bit comfortable at least reading something from the code base i started with python kubernetes client project just helping them with some documentation or fixing some already existing code i think after that in 6 months or so i ended up being selected for release team that was 123 that time i was also working with sig contribex and non technical stuff that time there was a meet our uh, contributors apac series going on i was helping writing blogs about active contributors from different parts of apac region i think that was one thing i was participating in the release team was one thing python kubernetes stayed for a while and yeah i think i ended up doing a lot of things just just trying to get my footing somewhere in the project well pranka you would not be the first person to run away from kubernetes on behalf of it being too complicated i tell you oh <laughs> kubernetes 3.0 let's remove all the settings <laughs> I would just say like coming back now I'm there in the project for a few years now I get this question from a lot of people who are just starting it with Kubernetes I think one of the best advice I can give to anybody at this point is just come into Kubernetes knowing that it's a huge project and you are going to have a learning curve and that's a story with everyone I think that makes it easy if somebody just lets you know like this is not going to be easy you are not going to get everything right on your day one it's going to take a lot of time If I had known that earlier, I don't know. Maybe it might have made a difference. But I'm happy I came back. <laughs> After Red Hat, I ended up in VMware. That was because of all the work I was doing in Kubernetes at that point of time. For the 128 cycle, you spent a bit of time focusing on your new role as the tech lead for the contributor experience sig. Tell me a little bit about the work you do there and what it means to be a TL for that. TL for Contribex does not really mean anything specific. We have a lot of sub projects under Contribex like GitHub management, election sub project, comms, contributor docs, mm-hmm. everything. Like I I can talk about all the machineries that is like a general machinery slack zoom, any all sorts of automation around all the infrastructure tooling that runs the entire Kubernetes project mm-hmm. that is managed by Contribex. Being a TL to Contribex is making sure those tools work or if wherever there is a automation we can put in automate all the tasks one of the things that i think i remember i did as a very first task being a tl was automating parts of the annual report so kubernetes publishes annual reports i think we did not publish one this year but maybe that's in process mm-hmm. that's a huge report and every sig has to fill their own parts and part of those sections that every sig fills is very repetitive we can get those stats out of this automation tooling one of my tasks was to automate parts of that i actually automated the parts very very specific to release like what caps any sig has worked on out of all those caps how many were alpha how many were graduated to beta and so on stuff like that maybe statistics like how many new projects any sig onboarded how many working groups or sub projects were retired things like that so all those stats we are trying to automate fetching those data from the entire ecosystem. I tell you it's going to be a lot easier to fill out the annual report for Kubernetes 3.0 when we deprecate all the things. <laughs> yeah. I hope people are listening to you. Yeah. <laughs> This is of course not a serious suggestion, but yeah. uh, some people out there know exactly what I'm talking about. 
Congratulations, of course, on the release of Kubernetes 1.29. Thank you. Thank you so much. You were talking before about reporting and enhancements and, and KIPs and so on. In this particular release, there are 49 enhancements that were tracked. 11 have graduated to stable, 19 are entering beta, and 19 are at alpha. Now, I read that that 49 is out of 72 that were tracked at the beginning of the cycle. How do you get from 72 to 49? And is that an average attrition? Yeah, I think 40, 45 plus is an average uh, attrition for every cycle. Mm -hmm. 72 actually is a number that we got at the very beginning of the cycle. Uh, We have something called enhancement collection time when every SIG who wants to participate into a particular release, we have an opt-in process. So they basically let the release team know all these features we are going to work on during the cycle. Please track it for us. After that, before like now that we are past the release and from the very beginning, we have a few milestones that happen during the release cycle. One of them is enhancements freeze. That's a time when all the KEP authors or SIGs who have actually opted in for some enhancements, they have to make sure the documentation of those KEPs is merged in a repo, Kubernetes slash enhancements. Before we merge them, there is like a checklist of criterias that documentation is to pass. So if any of those KEPs does not get through that particular milestone, those are removed from the milestone at that point. So we lose some KEPs at that point. And after that, like after enhancements freeze, we have a few months to actually start working on the enhancements that are tracked, which is implementing the code, writing documentation and everything. And then we reach another milestone called code freeze, which is we are now going to freeze everything on Kubernetes slash Kubernetes. And if any enhancements, any kept that was tracked on our tracking board does not have a completed code or a merged code at that point of time, they are also removed from the milestone. Because after that, we actually start getting into the RC cuts and we, we need to make sure whatever code is merged there is actually soaked in stable. We also have exception requests processes where if anybody just need a few days of time and they have a proper reasoning why it did not happen in time and why it is so important for a particular release cycle. That's also there we get a few caps back. Between enhancements freeze, code freeze, we lose a few. Is it harder to do a release that's timed very soon after a KubeCon? Yes. I think 129 release planning was a bit of a challenge. Mm-hmm. It was more around where do we place the code freeze milestone? Because that's like the last milestone where we are sure we know what is going to be included in the release. For us, during 129 cycle, code freeze, if we were to be scheduling it for the traditional week 10 of a release cycle, it would have happened right during the week of KubeCon. We were not able to do that. We tried to push it a week further, week 11, but we were not able to do that as well because we need approvers and reviewers available to review and approve everything that's going to be merged. For us in 129, we ended up reducing the entire code implementation timeline, which is usually two months or something. It was reduced to hardly like a month or so. And we ended up putting code freeze on week nine which made the actual implementation part of the 129 release cycle to be very short. So KubeCon, like coming at such an awkward time during a release cycle is definitely like a challenge. And I think that's going to be the case for all upcoming release cycles, provided we are going to include more KubeCons for more geos. There are a lot of KubeCons. Yeah. Let's sidetrack a little bit. How was KubeCon? KubeCon was nice, actually, this time in comparison to Amsterdam. Amsterdam was very cold for me. (laughs) 
Chicago would have been colder, but I learned from my time at Amsterdam, and I went prepared this time. I had a few talks. One of them was a Contrabex maintainers session, so we just talked a bit about Contrabex itself. Another one was around HCD. I learned something very nice about HCD and Kubernetes resource version, and I wanted to pass that down through a talk. I also got a Kubernetes contributor award. Congratulations! Thank you, thank you. That was for some work. Actually, me, Grace, and Mark, who was lead shadow as well with me during 127 release cycle, we worked on automating some bits of enhancements tracking. That award was for that work. Yeah, I got to meet a lot of people from the release team in person, which is always great to meet them in person, have a conversation around what we can do better, how they are feeling. I felt like that week would feel like a holiday, but that was not the case. I went back home with a lot of action items. You always need a holiday after a week away. That's what I find. Yeah, yeah. Now we are done with 129. Hopefully, and also it's holiday season, so. Hopefully now I can plan something. <laughs> Excellent. So let's have a look then at the enhancements that did make it into 129. We have a big breaking change. Historically, Kubernetes has included code for a set of cloud providers, including GCE, Azure, AWS. They're all gone now. What do I need to worry about? We are actually talking about a cap two three nine five. Yes, this cap is about removing entry cloud providers, but something different has happened during 129 cycle. To give a bit of historical context, like you already mentioned, we had in-tree code implementation present for five cloud providers, which is AWS, Azure, GC, OpenStack, vSphere. In version, I believe 126 and 127 cycle, AWS and I think OpenStack, those two cloud provider code was removed from Kubernetes core source code. Three are still there. We did not remove any cloud provider specific code implementation during 129. What happened is we flipped two particular feature flags that now start rendering all the existing code for Azure, GCE, and vSphere null and void. Mm -hmm. So once those two flags are flipped to true, I think those flags somehow enables the logic for if somebody is, for example, trying to build up a Kubernetes environment on a GCE cloud provider and they are asking QVPI server, okay. Take this flag. I'm letting you know GCE is the cloud provider. Now that particular flag won't understand that there is a GCE cloud provider, and all these logic you have to uh, use to set up my environment according to that particular cloud provider. That functionality is no longer going to work for GCE, Azure, and vSphere. There is going to be a blog that's coming out tomorrow. That's going to be one of the first blogs uh, after a release. That's going to help anybody who is going to be impacted by this change on how to mitigate. Brief is you will start passing external value. So the only value that flag cloud provider will understand now onwards would be cloud provider equals external. Anybody who is impacted will need to set up external cloud provider controller manager, and from there they will need to plug in their external cloud provider implementations. And so now those vendors can maintain those implementations of their plugin at their own pace and outside of the core tree. Yeah. Can I install them with Zipper? Not yet. <laughs> I think the main motive of this particular cap is this only that we want to remove all the in-tree cloud provider implementation from the code so that the cloud providers now can have their own releases and all their improvements irrespective of how Kubernetes core is releasing. That's the main intent. This is a wonderful step, removing code from Kubernetes on the path to my 3.0. <laughs> yes. 
we do have some new stable enhancements as well. Uh, we've been tracking improvements to key management, and we have a version 2, which has made its way through alpha and beta, and now is, is GA in 129. What do those improvements mean to me as a cluster administrator? So KMS version 2 improvements, for somebody who is already using KMS version 2, for example, as beta, not much is changing. The architecture and the design logic is same. We have just added a few administrative or like operation features. I think I'll give a bit of historical context on what KMS version 2 is. The idea is if any API in Kubernetes cluster store any persistent data into HCD, that's where KMS version 2 or encryption decryption comes in the picture. Mm -hmm. The idea is there is something called at rest encryption. If you want to store your persistent data into HCD, but you want to encrypt that first before storing it into HCD, you can make use of KMS version 2. That's one of the encryptions. And I think it's called envelope layer scheme, something like that. The good part of KMS version 2 is the key that you use to actually encrypt your data that does not reside inside the cluster. That key resides outside the cluster. You get that key from somewhere outside, which is called KMS server, I believe. Mm -hmm. That key is passed to a KMS version 2 plugin inside the cluster. And then Kube API server talks to this KMS plugin, gets that decrypted key, and then use that to encrypt the data that you or me uh, as a user or administrator are asking it to store inside etcd now all this process that we just talked about getting that key from outside passing that to kms version 2 plugin and then passing that to kube api server and seeking process for decryption there is tracing so one of the features that has come as part of 129 there is a tracing available for this entire operation another thing that has i think been added as part of 129 is a reference implementation so KMS version 2 plugin. Mostly right now, that plugin is cloud provider specific. For example, if you are having a Kubernetes cluster environment on GCP, GCP has its own key management service. Mm -hmm. AWS has its own and I think other cloud provider as well. So if you want to just do something like that for testing purpose, if you want to have a server, if you want to implement or mock it, there is a reference implementation added this cycle to the internal code. It's done using, I think, PKCS 11, uh, public key cryptographic standard 11. Uh, That's my favorite of all the PKCSs. Okay. <laughs> this cycle, nothing much has changed on the actual implementation of how KMS version 2 plugin works, but we have added uh, more data and more operational specific metrics so that people can trace what is happening under the hoods. You mentioned more tracing there. There's also a Kubelet resource metrics endpoint, which has moved to V1 in this release. Yeah, I think this one is interesting. So I was already trying to explain this particular KIP to somebody. There is a backstory to this as well. Kubernetes already has a API called Kubernetes Summary API that does two things. So it provides you some metrics on resources consumption, for example, CPU and memory. And the other one, it provides you monitoring metrics. It's not me. I'm not saying this. This is from the KEP documentation. They write it as, since it does two jobs, it does bad of both. <laughs> the intention behind this particular feature is to improve the first function of this particular summary endpoint to improve how we get resource metrics. So what they did is they actually created a dedicated API for resource metrics itself. That is going GA this cycle. So you will have better metric endpoints to get more information, more granular data on CPU and memory metrics. 
let's look at some of the uh, newer features that are coming in. We now have support for NF tables as opposed to IP tables in the cube proxy. Yeah, just a note, NF tables, we are talking about GAP 3866. NF tables is something that's alpha right now. So it's only implemented for Linux systems. It's not implemented for any other operating system right now. Mm-hmm. It's definitely aiming to be a successor of IP tables in Kubernetes at some point, but that's not the case right now. That's from the GAP authors. They are trying, but at alpha stage, it's not going to be as good in performance as IP tables right now. And it's not going to be as hip and popular as eBPF. Oh, <laughs> I can't comment on that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, if, if you want to try using NF tables as one of the cube proxy modes, you'll need to flip the flag for alpha. Also coming in in alpha, we have in-place update of pod resources. Yeah, 1287. This is one of the caps that's there for, I believe, a decade now. The discussion started during 1.17 cycle, if I recall correctly. And there is an issue that started on Kubernetes slash Kubernetes repo. I think it's 2015. Somebody requested for this particular feature. The main motive behind CAP 1287 is to make the port spec mutable. Right now, for example, if I have to change the resources, for example, CPU or memory I have allocated to any port, if I have to change them, I need to restart my port. And that's not something we need or we want to do in a lot of cases. For example, if the load that's on a port has significantly increased and we now want to add more CPU or memory resources, in that particular case, we do not want to kill the port and restart it again. We just want to give it more resources. Other case could be port has so many resources and memory and CPU assigned to it, but it's not using it and we want to not waste those resources. So we want to bring that number down. Again, we do not want to kill the port just to do that. This particular cap is trying to make that port spec mutable. It really unlocks vertical auto-scaling as a use case. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's exactly the use case. It is one of the most anticipated changes. Well, while we're on the topic of the most anticipated changes, sidecar containers finally in beta. Yeah. After at least a decade, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Sidecar containers, I think the only change we are seeing in 129 is it's going to be enabled by default. It was alpha in 128 when everybody actually got what they wanted. Not much change in 129. It's just going to be there by default. So anybody who wants to use it, if they have 129 on their clusters, it will be there by default. And obviously, as this version hits the cloud providers, only features that are available in beta in general are available. (laughs) That's a bit of an awkward wording, of course. (laughs) Generally, only features that are in beta are available, not generally available, but are available on services like GKE. So this will actually be the chance for everyone to get access to something they've been wanting for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned before the timing of the release and uh, things needing to slip here and there. This isn't the date that the release was initially scheduled for. Yes, that's correct. Kubernetes 129 was actually scheduled for December 5, and I think... Two, three days before the actual scheduled date, we got a pre-announcement from Golang project for a few minor releases, security CV private fixes. Mm-hmm. So we had to delay our actual intended release date because of that. It takes some time for us to actually incorporate all the Golang bumps in our entire machinery. Uh, so we needed to do that as well as we needed to give some time to soak in uh, all those changes. 
one good thing we did as part of that delay uh, we also had another rc cut so there was also a rc2 it has been a tradition for the last few releases at least that the theme and the logo for the release are only announced at the time of the publication of the release you sort of broke with tradition a little bit here the theme is mandala the universe and i'd love it if you could explain the reason and the meaning behind the theme and your motivation for releasing it earlier than is been tradition to this point i wanted to have a logo based on some art form in india and mandala is one of the art forms we have we use it in many parts of india to create this rangolis or floor arts during our festivals both in north india south india in different festivals and the logo we have for 129 looks like one of those rangolis or floor arts we make the actual meaning of mandala the term itself is called universe and i wanted to use that meaning of mandala art form to somehow depict the 40 team members a small universe we have of our 40 release team members as well as everyone from the community who help us to get this release through and not just the contributors and release team members everybody actually who are supporters and users of kubernetes who provide us feedback and support and let us actually turn all of these challenges into something fun at the end of our release so this logo is for everybody who creates this universe why this was announced a week i think it was announced 3 or 4 days before the actual intended date we had december 5 I remember CC doing that CC in 125 and Ray Lehano in 123 they shared their logos uh, with the entire release team during one of the last release team meetings I felt doing the same and just just passing that logo to everyone the logo was actually meant for everyone on the release team and I just wanted to share it with them also for the processes reason we had to include the logo and the part of brief in our release blog so it just went out There's a little easter egg hidden in the four compass points on the mandala for people who are familiar with the Devanagari script is that correct? Yes, that's Devanagari script and particular font we have used is Annapurna SIL. So if you start reading from left to right clockwise, it's 1.29 written there in uh, Devanagari script. So we just wanted to keep the geometric symmetric format of the logo uh, while also incorporating some bit of 129 in there beautiful this logo is created by one of the contributors of kubernetes project itself mario jason braganza very beautiful thank you every time i speak to a release manager i ask them what they learned from their predecessor and what they intend to put in the envelope for the next lead so let's talk first of all about grace nguyen who was the lead for the last release did you have a chance to work a lot with her and, and what did you learn from her in particular i did not have a chance to work with grace on 128 which was the release when she led but i actually worked with her on many other releases she was enhancements lead when i did enhancement shadow in 124 we also did release lead shadow together in 127 i believe so yeah we had multiple chances to work together i think one of the things that i absolutely love about grace is she is always available to help and she makes sure people know that she offers help with so much energy and so much willingness that is one of the things that i learned from her that's even beyond like release team stuff so that is one thing i'm tried to use and what i would want to maybe pass down to somebody else one thing as a release lead i had to do a lot of was to repeat my questions whenever i needed to get some answers from people get some clear information from people i had to rephrase my questions a lot so that i can get out 
some useful answers that I'm trying to get out from all the other valuable discussions happening. So I think one of the advice I would give to anybody is like, just keep asking, keep doing whatever you are doing, even if it is feeling hard in the moment. But if you need help, just ask in many different platforms. As a release lead, in our handbooks also, it's written there. You don't have to take decisions on your own. You have to involve as much people as you can from the community, from the release team, and have everyone opinion in one place and then take a decision. Just do that. I think that was very empowering for me. I never felt like I was alone and I had all this pressure of taking all the decision on the entire release team. Anytime I had to make a decision, all I needed to do was start a thread with the community, have everyone there, have everyone opinions, get some votes and then take a decision. And it felt so easy in comparison to if I had to do all on my own. So, yeah. The 130 release lead has been nominated. It's Kat Cosgrove. You've worked with her throughout the last few releases. Do you have any specific advice for her on what she should expect? What's in the uh, desk drawer, as it were? Kat is amazing, actually. I love the way she works. I think the only advice I would give is look for KubeCon. KubeCon is coming again on <laughs> sometime during code freeze. So, yeah, just, just do the release planning up front. I don't really have other advice. I think we will still be there. Like I'll still be there in the release team and we'll be doing whatever we need to do to make 130 as well successful. Don't have anything at the top of my mind right now. Now, as you said earlier, before you joined SUSE, you worked at VMware for about a year. You worked with a number of talented people, many of whom unfortunately may be looking for new work at the moment. What would you say to anyone listening to the show who's looking to hire good talent? That's a bit of a sad thing, yeah. I had a few colleagues of my own who were impacted by the recent change. If anybody who is listening to this podcast and have opportunities for anybody who has talents and skill around Kubernetes downstream or upstream, I'm talking about people like maintainers of etcd, containerd, or tools that actually helps us to release publishing both LTS also. If you're looking for those kind of skills, definitely reach out to people from VMware or you can reach out to me and I can connect you with those people. Yeah, there are a lot of good talent out there. Make use of that. Well, that just about brings us to the end of the interview. So now it's time for any announcements. Yeah, one of the major hot announcements we have is for anybody who is still using our legacy Linux package repositories. I'm talking about yam.kubernetes.io or app.kubernetes.io. Please migrate please migrate to our Kubernetes community-owned package repositories, which is packages.kubernetes.io, pkgs.kubernetes.io. This change is scheduled to happen sometime at the end of 2023, so please plan to migrate before that. We have a few blogs to help you to get more information on this entire move from our legacy Linux package repositories to community-owned package repositories. So if you need those, I think those will be plugged at the bottom of this podcast. All right. Well, you'll be able to find all that information in the show notes. And it just remains for me to say thank you very much for joining me today, Priyanka. Thank you for inviting me, Craig. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you. You can find Priyanka on the Kubernetes Slack as psagu, P-S-A-G-G-U. And you can also find her writings at psagu.com. Thanks to the Kubernetes 1.29 contributors and release team. Thank you to Priyanka for representing them today and for her time. And thanks to you for listening. If you've enjoyed this interview, please subscribe at craigbox.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can find me on Twitter or mastodon.social as Craig Box. See you next time.